invite you to turn this morning to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, if you find the book of Isaiah and work back from there, the book just preceding Isaiah, you'll find the short Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. It doesn't sound so short when you say that you've been in it for over two years. But it's only at communion, and then there are certain communions where we have not given consideration to it as well. But we find ourselves in chapter 6, Song of Solomon, chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 1. The focus of our attention will be verses... Well, actually it won't be. This will be part of a, at least one other message in relation to this. It will be in two parts. So we'll not get much further than verse 4. But the section that we're dealing with now is verses 4 through 9. But let's read from verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whether is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? My beloved has gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barn among them. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bare her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. Amen. May, as always, we be dependent upon the Spirit of God to give us understanding in the Word this morning. Let's bow together again in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. We want our hearts to be ready to receive the bread and the cup. And the Word of God is a means that God uses to help us in this. May it be so this day. May we turn from our sins and turn on to Christ. Lord, help us with this. Help us by Thy Spirit to turn from our sins and turn on to Christ. We confess, O God, how far short we fall. And yet we're thankful for Jesus, who is our blood and righteousness. The very beauty of the church, every child of God, is so, and finds standing in thy presence because they're clothed in a righteousness that is not their own, a beauty procured for them by the life and death of Jesus Christ. Gracious God, we pray, help us then to stand in these great truths and give great praise to thy name because what we need as sinners is found in Christ and we need no other. As we give consideration to thy word, as we ponder what it communicates to us, 
We pray that the Spirit of God will take the preacher, lead us. May the Holy Ghost be very evident in every utterance. And above all, may every heart be prepared to sit at the table of the Lord in the fashion that is intended by thee. So hear us then. Meet with us. Extend thy kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us that haven't been with us for very long, um, just as I've already indicated, we have been going through the Song of Solomon as a means to prepare us for communion. Communion is a special season for the church. It's not like every other service. It is something that we ought to treasure and appreciate with a heightened sense of the Lord's condescension to us. That it would please our God to give to us a means that would put before us what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in very evident, tangible elements is a mercy. It is a recognition of His, His, His awareness of the fact that we struggle at times to believe even what he has said. And so to aid us in our faith, he gives to us tangible means to consider what he has done. The bread reminds us of his body, the body that was broken for us. The cup reminds us of his blood, shed for the remission of our sins. And as we more fully understand Christ and what he has done for us, when we take these emblems, it's communicating afresh the realities upon which we stake our lives and our souls. I trust that there's sufficient knowledge in the congregation here in terms of the gospel that will enable you to fully appreciate when we participate in communion what you're doing, that you're not just taking the bread, as it were, and not thinking much about Christ. You're just taking it because it's being passed to you. But you're actually recognizing that this signifies that God became man, that God identifies with men by His condescension and taking upon Himself a body, a real body, in order that He might be a substitute for us. So it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop simply with the body. But the body had to be broken, and the blood had to be shed. And so we see not only the provision of God taking the body and offering Himself, but the actual shedding of the blood by which we have the remission of sin. For without shedding of blood, there is no remission for our sins. And so the reason we turn to the Song of Solomon is that it plays a unique part in the canon of Scripture in communicating to us not just these truths that I've already put before you, but particularly how we should feel towards these truths. How we should feel towards Jesus Christ. Different books of the Bible place a different emphasis and our spiritual lives. You'll notice a, a great distinction between the literature of the Song of Solomon in comparison to the book of Proverbs, for example. The focus, the drive, the intent is distinct. It's all driving us towards the Lord. It's all helping us to better glorify God. But it has a particular emphasis. And the Song of Solomon drives at our affections. The book presents various sections that correlate with marital experience. But it's not just marriage. It's not just the, the precursor to marriage and the union itself and then what follows. The marriage, the experience of marriage and so on. It is how we feel. We have been given the capacity to feel. 
I emphasize this. I think it's crucial for us to understand we are not Stoics. And the kind of Christianity, take for example, given where we are today, having sat amidst a funeral yesterday, there could be a Stoic approach that just looks at it fatalistically and says, well, someone, someone has died and, and that's just the way of life and we just we resign ourselves there. It's just a, a reality of experience. But we don't feel anything. It doesn't move us in any way. But we are to be moved. Jesus did weep. And we are to be moved by the experiences of life. God has given to us the capacity of affection which is not to be subdued wrongly. Certainly our affections and emotions can get the better of us. And they can be unruly. They can be in a fashion not led of the Spirit of God. But this is where this book comes into play because it is driving our capacity to love and feel, to have sorrow and joy. It is, it is driving, it is enveloping the spectrum of human emotion that it has been given predominantly in order to be reflected toward Jesus Christ. There are different views as to who speaks in some of the verses that we're considering in this section, verses 4 through 9. But I'm taking verses 4 through 9 to reflect the sentiments and words of the bridegroom. This is taking it in the fashion that traditionally the church has taken it, in which we take it. Christ speaks here from verse 4 to His bride, to His church, communicating and reflecting the sentiments of His heart towards her. And the words are remarkable. And we're not going to get through it all. As I say, verse 4 will be sufficient for us, I think, this morning. But I've entitled the message today, Christ's utmost admiration for the church. Christ's utmost admiration for the church. And while there are three points to this, you're only getting point one this morning. And the first point is, he admires what she proclaims. He admires what she proclaims. Look at verse four. Thou art beautiful, O my love. We'll look at the rest in just a moment, but just pause over that expression, O my love. He owns her as his own. And you can put your mind then to the various passages, such as John chapter 10, where our Lord Jesus kneels down this reality. They are my sheep. They are mine. I have laid down my life for them. They belong to me. In whatever fashion men may be divided up or expressed as belonging to this family or someone maybe belonging to their spouse or belonging to a various district or area or our country, whatever way we may divvy up humanity and say they belong to a place or a person or a family, ultimately overarching all of that is this claim of the Son of God saying His church is His. We belong to Him. We could pause on these three words and consider them the full extent of what it means for Jesus Christ to say, Oh, my love. My love. I want you to hear those words this morning, especially if you're conflicted. 
questioning whether or not the Lord loves you. Looking at your life, examining the circumstances of your present existence, your lot, and you're wondering why, and you're questioning, you're, you're trying to understand why, and in the midst of the questioning of, of why, you come back to this feeling of, does the Lord love me? Hear these words. Hear them personally. Hear them as being spoken to you. My love. I want us, as we consider his admiration for what she proclaims, first of all, the proclamation of her character. The proclamation of her character. She is, first of all, beautiful. Look at verse 4 again. Thou art beautiful. And how is she beautiful? See how she's described. Thou art beautiful, skipping the little, oh my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem. Beautiful as Terza. Terza was a city with presence. We don't know where it was. Archaeologists aren't able to verify with any concrete ability where Terza is or where it was because it's so ruined today and they haven't found any evidence to say where it was. But it must have been a city of presence. It must have been a city of significance. After Solomon's time, when the kingdom is divided, Israel is divided between north and south, Terza would serve as the capital of the northern kingdom from the reign of Jeroboam to Omri before it moved into Samaria. So it was taken to be the place of the palace, the place from which the, the, the reign of the king would flow from, and it was taken because of its advantageous situation. It was favored in that way. And so Terza was a, was a city of, of favor, just like Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem also was highlighted here, comely as Jerusalem, another ancient city that was highly advantaged in its situation, if you can use that term. And so the bride is likened to two cities that were considered prime locations that communicated something of beauty when contrasted with other cities. There's a distinction here. It's not haphazard. It's not just saying Terza and Jerusalem simply because those are the first two cities that come to mind. Terza wasn't quite what it would be in terms of its significance at the point that Solomon's writing this. He's writing this before the division of the kingdom, before the north and south come into existence. But Terza was known for its situation, its favorable and advantageous positioning, and so was Jerusalem. And so this is how he is, he is likening her. Thou art beautiful as Terza, comely as Jerusalem. You're not like others. If you take to take the church and compare her to cities, she is of the most significant of all. She is situated in a place that stands out, which when you approach, you see its advantages clearly. Where everyone can tell there's, there's a difference here. But this favor, of course, goes to more than merely her being distinct. It is in relation primarily to her beauty. She is beautiful. That's how she's described. These cities were then, because of their advantages, were in a certain sense beautiful. But how do we understand the beauty of the church? 
We've seen this already in various other passages. But, but this, this is it's very simply understood. Jesus Christ looks at his bride and says, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem. He is marking out her beauty, and her beauty is that which is appealing to him. His eye is drawn to her. Why is that? Is it none other than her reflection of him? It's what we call Christ-likeness. It's what we call holiness. It's what the Scripture speaks of in terms of walking in the Spirit that you don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But as we've noted time and time again, there's an aspect to this beauty that has been given to her, imputed to her, that we should never undermine or ignore or brush over the fact that the real beauty that she possesses, the legal standing that she has, is something that he has gifted to her. But it doesn't stop there. It is to be taken on. It is, yes, he has given me a righteousness that allows me to stand in his presence and be accepted in the beloved. But, but it's more than that. It's, a, it's an adoption of all of his ways. It's a taking on of this responsibility that as he has credited to me his life, then it is incumbent on me to take that as the pattern for which I should live. It is the driving force behind my life. It is trying to understand what would please the Lord, what would draw his eye and affection and love and favor. And I know that we can take this too far and we can move into works righteousness and try to say that we're trying to gain favor with God. Of course, that's not the case. We have obtained favor. But there is a sense in which the Lord looks for and favors those who, with reliance on the Spirit of God, endeavor to reflect Him. As I quote often, because it's so distinct and clear and unambiguous, 1 John 2, 6, walk even so as he walked. It's plain. This is the call. This is the responsibility. This is the awareness that the believer has that in seeing the life of Christ and looking at him, there is a call then to reflect his way of living. And this is beautiful to him. It is, in a sense, our otherworldliness. So, so as, you, as you may have looked in those days at Jerusalem and people would have said, what an advantageous place to, to set up a community, to build a city. Or the same for Terza and say the same about it. People are to look at the church and see that she is unlike other things, unlike other bodies, unlike other entities. She is distinct. And when the church adopts this mentality that to the point that we understand our fallenness, our depravity, the, the, the sinfulness and the wickedness of our hearts, when we understand that to mean that we are no different than the world, we misunderstand. There's a sense, yes, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has fallen short. But when we impose on that an understanding that means Christians look like, live like, think like, act like the world, the rest of the world, we, we completely misunderstanding a significant aspect of His redeeming grace. He has made us to sit like Terza and Jerusalem. The world should look on and say, what advantages they have. 
So Christian, take that to heart. Take it to heart that you have a personal responsibility to reflect by the grace of God. In terms of cities, you're not like other cities. You're different. How you run your household is different. How you speak to your spouse is different. How you speak to your children is different. How you conduct your work is different. And I don't, I know we're not without our inconsistencies. We're not without our blind spots. This is a constant reality we must accept that keeps us humble and dependent upon divine grace. An awareness that there are always, always those areas of our life that need to be reformed. But there's also the reality. You, by His grace, are a new creature. You are a new creation. You are different. Show it. This is what the Lord wants. It is to be proclaimed loud and clear. It's not to be hidden. It's like Jerusalem and Terza in that sense. If you have any understanding of advantageous situation for cities and localities and communities, you would look at it and you say, how advantaged it is. And you would see it. And the world then is to see the church proclaim the advantages she has. And she's not trying to labor in a form of morality by the power of the strength of, of the flesh, but that by divine grace, they look on and ask, how is it that they love each other so? Christ showed the greatest love for the world that would ever be on display by not being like the world. And so do we. We're different. Our beauty then, we proclaim it by our distinction from all others around us. But she's not only beautiful, she's also peaceful. The distinction of her character may also be seen in the meaning of the names. Now, Terza means she is my delight or she's favorable, which lends itself to what we've already considered. The church is communicating something of the fact that she is favored. So we've seen that already. But Jerusalem means foundation of peace or pillar of peace. And so this is something else that's being communicated, specifically in terms of Jerusalem, that it's communicating that it is the foundation of peace. And this is to be seen in the church. This is to be seen in the Christian life, that if the world is looking for peace, it will find it among God's people. Now, there are different definitions of peace, different ways of considering peace. But the Bible gives at least two ways that are very clear in terms of how we understand peace particularly in what it is that's communicated by us. So you're communicating something of peace to the world or a want of it. Even how you deal with all your challenges of life and all the experiences of life, you're communicating something of what you know of peace. And what we are to proclaim like Jerusalem, proclaiming peace, what we are to proclaim, first of all, 
is how we enjoy, as sinners, peace with God. That's part of our message to the world. So it makes us distinct. The world wants to find peace with God that's as religious as it ever has been, maybe even more so. Oh, America may not feel that way, but largely speaking across the world, there's, there's lots of religious activity and belief. They all have various ideas in terms of obtaining or, or communicating what it is to have peace with your deity or peace with God. But the church proclaims confidently an understanding of what it is to have peace with the true and living God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a message. That's what's to be proclaimed. That's what the church issues forth to the world. How do you obtain peace with God? Not through your own merit, not through membership of a church, not through any religious behavior, not through any sacramental observance. It is through this message that we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through Christ. And so a message of Christ and Him crucified is put forth, we'll see that in just a moment, by the church of Jesus Christ to the intent that men are justified by believing and in their believing they have peace with God. And this is the most glorious message. This is what the church is all about. This is what every Christian must see as the preeminent message of their life. Christian, what are you going to be known for? You will be known for something. You will. But I trust that it will coincide that as you give yourself to your art, your craft, your skill, your calling, whatever it is, that it is communicating how sinners can have peace with God. And so mothers, as you, as you mother, as you speak to your children, let it always be not some handed down, maybe closely related to the Bible, pseudo-philosophy for life that the children grasp. Let the foundation be being justified by faith. We, we heard our sister, it's coming to mind, our sister Hannah proclaim it yesterday. And she would be in emotional turmoil and facing her own challenges in life. What was the message of her father? Are you still justified? What's he doing? He's bringing her back to the essential message of the church of Jesus Christ, justified by faith. Yes, I'm still justified. Are you still going to heaven? Yes, I'm still going to heaven. So don't overreact to the changing circumstances of life. The most important thing is real. It's real to you. You possess it. It can never be taken from you. And that has to be the focus. The focus of us as individuals, the focus of the church. How we have peace with God. Not just to the lost. Obviously that's the case. In all of our ministries, the foundation of our message out to them is you can obtain peace with God by having faith in Christ, trusting in Him alone. But in everything we do, coming back in our communication, in a relationship with one another, we come back to the same thing. What is the problem in many marriages? The problem in many marriages as well, the game was pointed out yesterday. I'm rubbing this in in case you switched off. Maybe that's why the Spirit of God is leading in this way because it wasn't my intent. But I'm rubbing it in in case you were, ne- were not here or you just missed it. When Dr. Allison was thinking about marriage and worried about marriage and so on, and he had to have a wife who understood justification by faith because I don't want to live with someone who's riddled with guilt. 
and constantly dealing with things with guilt because they'll feel the guilt and they'll impute guilt and their whole relationship will be based on guilt. And so the communication with one another is about making others feel low about themselves so they can feel better and playing this constant warfare about who's, who's, who's in the wrong this time and a complete inability to forgive. And what is that? But a misunderstanding of we are justified by faith. This is a sealed status. It doesn't give us license to live how we please, but it is how we view one another. That if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're a member of the body of Christ. And so I don't first see you as my spouse. I first see you as a member of the body of Christ. I relate to you as a brother or sister in Christ. Therefore, I forgive as Christ forgives. Or I can't be forgiven. All of this, all this practical understanding flows from the church's foundational message. Peace with God is obtained by turning to Christ and resting in Him. But it's not just peace with God, it's the peace of God. The church communicates that as well. As we find in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, you'll know the words well, no doubt. Be careful for nothing. That is, don't be anxious for anything. Let's underline it. There is never a reason for anxiety in terms of dealing with the circumstances of life. Now, there are reasons why we may be anxious, but there's no reason to stay there. There is a place where you can move to, as Paul exhorts. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, note every detail, ponder every expression here, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God. This is another message that the church proclaims to the world. The peace of God. Peace with God, which must be foundational. Then the peace of God. You know what so much of the world's psychology and of its counseling today focuses upon? Trying to have peace of without first having peace with. It wants to have peace of mind. But they're doing it militating against God. Not dealing with the foundational issue of why man is in want of peace in the first place. He is a sinner. He is subject to this fallen world. He is corrupt in his nature. He has a problem deep down. And unless you deal with that first, you're not going to have in any meaningful sense what it is man so desperately needs. Peace of mind, peace of heart. So the church then communicates, well, you want this? You want this? You're going to have peace? It's the peace of God. It belongs to God. It's granted by God. God communicates it. That's why we can't understand it. It passes all understanding because God issues it forth. It's not something mustered up by human ability and strength. It's something that He grants mercifully to His people who seek Him 
amidst their cares and concerns. So when you're counseling someone who's facing anxiety and worry, what's your message, church? What's this telling us? We proclaim peace. And we deal with people with anxiety and worry and depression, discouragement. Husbands, when you have a wife who's in a position where she's greatly discouraged, what do you do? You get her back. You get her back to her standing in Christ. And then from there, you can flow out to the peace of God. You can enjoy this peace of God. Seek the Lord, make the cares known. Why is it that prayer makes such a difference? Well, because your sons and the Father listens to His children. He's given you the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, so that you can bring your cares to Him and then know peace amidst all the uncertainty of life. We are to communicate this to the praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he, is, he admires this. He loves it. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem. But she is also terrible. She is terrible. That doesn't sound too good today. doesn't seem to fit with she is beautiful, she is peaceful. Now she is terrible. It tells us verse 4, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem. Terrible as an army with banners. She is terrible. And we'll see just in what way she's terrible, but just to see this as a distinct characteristic, that she has a certain terribleness to her. What does it mean? Well, it seems to conflict with what we've already dealt with. But terribleness is this idea of of frightfulness. But you think, well, how does that fit with peace? But the peacefulness of the church is not intended to communicate the powerlessness of the church. The peace that she has doesn't mean that she is without a message that should bring fright and concern to the surrounding world. She is terrible as an army with banners, which we'll see in just a moment, but it has this frightening scene of an approaching army carrying banners that communicate the one who's in authority and the one in whose name they approach. And so the church is terrible. She lives amidst a world that has repeatedly, century after century, in various parts of the world, thrown its worst at the church. And she stands there unmoved. Some kings and emperors have thrown everything they could to the destruction of the church of Jesus Christ. And when they come to the end of their pitiful existence, the church is stronger than she ever was. And that way, the church is terrible. Christ looks at her and admires He loves that. He sees the courage, the stability, the longevity of His church existing through every trial and continuing on faithfully. She is terrible. And so let us see this even as we have it in the record of Scripture. Go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. So we're brought in to the period where the patriarchs have gone, several centuries have passed. We're given a little insight into what had transpired that leads up to the Exodus. So Exodus 1, verse 7, the children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. 
Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. He said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. So here's the intention. The desire is to extinguish them, to remove them. But what happens? Verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. <laughs> this is the church. This is her terribleness. You can throw the might of one of the greatest living empires of the day at the church of Jesus Christ, and she will continue to multiply. She will continue to grow. It's like she's invincible, and all the energy you throw at her is absorbed and worked out into greater power within the church. Does that all happen with Saul of Tarsus? Not just in terms of the ability of the church to withstand the horrendous cruelty of kings, but sometimes to take into her those cruel individuals and make them even more mighty in the outworking of the Lord's will than in Satan's. And how do we do this? How do we withstand Pharaoh? How are we able to face a world that hates us, despises us, endeavors to destroy us? Well, it is quite simple. We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll read it to you, it's familiar to many of you, I'm sure. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Keep that in mind. We don't war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the church is terrible because of her mighty ability to withstand carnal warfare without even using the same means. How does man go into battle? Who has the best technology? That's how many wars are won today. Who has the best technology? That's how you win wars, but, but not with the church. No. No, you can bring all the technology. You can bring new devices for persecution. And the church will continue. And that way she is terrible. She is frightful. Because every attempt to destroy her falls flat. And so we have seen the proclamation of her character. But then... Note also the proclamation of his cross, because she is terrible as an army with banners. Terrible as an army with banners. Banners were used to communicate what camp you were in. You can see this even in the book of Numbers in relation to the families of Israel. In Numbers chapter 2, for example, there's a number of places where you see this in Numbers, but I'll read Numbers 2 in the beginning verses of that chapter, the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard. That's the idea of banners. Pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. 
Far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch, and on the east side toward the rising of the the sun shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies, and so on and so forth. So they have this sign, this banner that signifies to whom they belong. They were used to help organize armies into their camps, but they were also used to communicate a message to opposing forces. If you can envisage the army coming up over the horizon, the banner would be on display. People who could see would be aware of the fact that this is what army is coming, and it would communicate what's on, what's coming their way. But the church is terrible as an army with banners. So that sense of frightful appearance of an army coming, signifying there's a battle about to ensue, and as you see the name or the ensign or the signification of a great king or emperor coming your way, and you begin to tremble at the thought that you're going to face this battle and possibly lose, the church is terrible as an army with banners. She comes over the horizon to the fright of her enemies. But what is the banner, beloved? What are we lifting up? Free Presbyterianism? Reformed? Calvinist? Baptist? Whatever. Is that what we lift up? Turn to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to take time to read from the first verse of this chapter because this is prophetic of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to verse 10, there's an important text there to understand. Verse, or chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So understand that. This is speaking about Christ. His first advent, here he is. Now, don't, don't stumble when you read the rest. If you don't understand it, don't get too worried about it. But what we're dealing with here is a prophetic insight into the first advent of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf of the, and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling, sucking child shall play in the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day... There shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And you can go on to read of the remnant and so on. But note verse 10. What's it saying? This root of Jesse will stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek. This is the lifting up of the first advent of Jesus Christ to the world. It is the lifting up 
of the work of Jesus Christ. It is the proclamation, as it were, of the cross. And to it the Gentiles seek. This is the message of the church. And this is what is so lovely about her in the eyes of the Lord Jesus as he looks at the church and he sees her proclaiming, proclaiming the cross. And so she goes into the world facing all the warfare. And what's at the heart of her activity? She will lift up the ensign before the people and the Gentiles will run to it for salvation. That is what she's about. In other words, she's proclaiming Christ is the only way to heaven. There is no other way. This is the church stands there and, and says this, declares this, lifts up this banner. This is what comes over the horizon of a perishing world. This is what happens when a missionary goes into a territory, into a tribe, into a country that's never been reached with the gospel. He's like a man, like a, a, an army, terrible as an army with banners, coming with the message of the cross. And the devils flee in fear because Satan, Satan is afraid of the message of the gospel. Lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine onto them. He, is, he has no answer to it. When the gospel is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, every demon of hell is utterly impotent to stop it. Do you understand that? That the work the church is engaged in is guaranteed in its success. And the devil and all his minions can, can rise up in a great big army against the cross of Jesus Christ and work to try and prevent the the. the, the Hearts of men being inclined, but, but, every single person for whom Christ shed his blood, he will be successful. If every single demon of hell was surrounded one of the elect, he would be utterly powerless to prevent that soul from coming to Christ. This is why the church is terrible as an army with banners. She comes forward as a force of unnatural, supernatural nature. And there's no answer. There is no answer for it. And so they will all come. The banners of false religion and philosophy, they'll converge together against the church. It's like in Joshua's day. You read in Joshua 9, verse 1, as he engages in taking over the land. And it came to pass when all the kings, which were on this side Jordan, and the hills and in the valleys, and the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. That's always happening. They're always pulling together. They're always linking arms in their opposition to Jesus Christ and the putting forth of his message. But it has no answer. Just before we close, turn for a moment to Colossians chapter 2. I was with the young adults in this this morning. Looking at this momentarily as we dealt with some matters, but Colossians chapter 2. Verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So it's not enough to pray a prayer. It's not enough to walk an aisle. It's not enough to be born in a Christian family. In the receiving of Christ, there is the absolute necessity to walk in Him. Walk in Him. 
every step guided, instructed by him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught. You're to take what you're being taught, you're to take it and apply it, walk it out, live it out, act it out. This must be done. There's no maturity without this. Children, when you're instructed by your parents in the things of Christ, take it to heart. Don't ignore it. If you ignore it, it will be to your detriment. Always, always take on board what you're taught. And then you're bound therein with thanksgiving. Of course you do. You're bound in thanksgiving because you've received Christ and you continue to be built up in Him. Then beware, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, not after Christ. So here they come with an alternative message. Here's one of the ways in which, in which Satan endeavors to disrupt the proclamation of the cross. And Paul is held in Christ. The answer to the philosophies of the world is not more vain philosophy. It is the cross of Christ. That, beloved, is the answer. That's the answer. That's why you don't need a degree in philosophy in order to argue with the philosophies of the age. You don't need to have extensive experience and presuppositional apologetics to be a winner of souls. You need to simply believe in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and proclaim it. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything in terms of truth and justice and love and goodness and mercy and all the attributes of God are found in Jesus Christ. Lift Him up. He is the answer for all the philosophies of the world. Because they'll all link arms. All the philosophers of nihilism, all their efforts to make men believe that life is not worth living, that man has no real purpose, it's all accidental, your existence has no real material significance, you're a product of evolutionary development, various chemical processes. You have no significance. You have no meaning. That's, that comes from all angles, comes in all different forms, all different verbiage, and the purpose is to make you think, why am I here? What's the point in living? And the cross, or the church rather, lifts up the cross and says, here's the purpose. Here's the heart. Here's the meat and potatoes. Here's the essence of the message that the world needs to hear. So this is what we do. As the psalmist says, and with this we'll close, Psalm 20, verse 5, we will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. That's what we do. We are people enjoying the gospel. We enjoy our salvation, and in the name of our God we set up our banners, and we go forward as victors in the battle. Oh, church of Jesus Christ, stop elevating the powers of your enemies. Stop thinking that you're on the demise and you're holding on. You're just trying to exist and survive. And what's going to happen to America? And what's going to happen to the church? She will stand terrible as an army with banners. And should the Lord tarry, the church will still be here. 
and she'll continue on, and there'll always be a remnant. And sometimes the remnant is expansive, and sometimes it gets down, but she can never be extinguished. She can never be rooted out. She will always be there, lifting up the cross. And even when she looks around and it feels like she's Elijah, and there's no one else standing with you, even then, you'll stand on. If you're Elijah and you really are on your own, though he wasn't, but if you feel that way, even then such will be the resolve of the Spirit of God. You will be terrible as an army with banners. You cannot be extinguished. The church will continue. So this is the message we proclaim. And the Lord today sets elements before us. He reminds us, this is what it's about. It's about this, Christian. It's about this. God became man took a body, lived this life for us, shed his blood for the remission of sins. This is what it is. Proclaim it to yourself. He's proclaiming it to you. Proclaim it to yourself and then go out there and proclaim it to the world. That's your calling. Day by day with your neighbors, an opportunity arises with your colleagues, not known for all these political views and stuff. There's there, there are stands that need to be taken. I know it. But let, let the gospel. There are a lot of people who are very loud about pro-life issues and very loud about other ethical issues that we would agree with. But they never preach Christ. They have no burden. They want to win souls to their view of the ethical issue even if they perish in their sin. Let it not be us. Let's bow together in prayer. This is a moment where you can just take to heart the message that you've heard. Receive it by faith into your heart. Confess your unbelief as you feel as if you're on the losing side. Confess your unbelief and not believing that your simple proclamation of Christ is sufficient to win souls. Profess your unbelief whenever you resort to other philosophies and trying to fix your family issues. The gospel is sufficient. Have faith in Christ. And walk out the word as you have been taught. Lord, help us all. We feel our weakness. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing terrible about us as individuals. And even collectively, looked at as a sum of our parts, we're, we're very weak. But oh, whenever the Spirit of God is upon His church. And for those days we seek, we seek an outpouring of Thy Spirit. Oh, Lord, make us to be what Thou dost will us to be, beautiful, communicating the peace of the gospel, standing terrible as an army with banners, proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ as the primary message men need to hear. Proclaim then that message to our hearts by faith today. As we take these emblems, we remember our Lord Jesus. May our hearts feel and lean into 
the mighty victory in the cross. We pray in Jesus' name.